I love being an executive coach. It's one of the ways I feel like I can increase the impact of the nonprofit sector. And more importantly, I coach remarkable people, gritty and resilient, charismatic and passionate, and hungry to learn. Over the last three to five years, I've had the privilege of working with a number of Black women CEOs. In fact, a majority of my current clients are leaders of color. They are hungry to learn, and if you'll excuse my language, they are badass leaders. Working with them on developing leadership and management skills, actually, it doesn't feel like work. My clients learn, and so do I. The headline lesson for me, these badass leaders arrive to organizations that are often broken and dysfunctional. They have not done the work in systems, culture, and policy to set these leaders up for success. I really want you to hear some of what I hear, and so I asked one of my clients to join me today. April Fraser Kamara is the president and CEO of NLADA, the National Legal Aid and Defender Association. She's part of a cohort of Black women leaders who meet regularly to support one another, and that group has proven to be a lifeline. So she may be one woman, but her stories are not hers alone. We'll talk about what boards need to hear, know, and understand about the role they play in the success of leaders of color. We'll talk about the world since George Floyd, and we'll talk about the implications of our political climate and recent Supreme Court decisions. It's time to hear from a courageous leader standing boldly. Greetings and welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. I'm your host, Joan Gary, founder of the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, where we help smaller nonprofits thrive. I'm also a strategic advisor for executive directors and boards of larger nonprofits. I'm a frequent keynote speaker, a blogger, and an author on all things leadership and management. You can learn more at joangary.com. I think of myself as a woman with a mission to fuel the leadership of the nonprofit sector. My goal with each episode is to dig deep into an issue I know that nonprofit leaders are grappling with by finding just the right person to offer you advice and insights. Today is no exception. The National Legal Aid and Defender Association, founded in 1911, NLADA is America's largest and oldest nonprofit association devoted to excellence in the delivery of legal services to those who cannot afford counsel. There is no other legal organization that touches all the access points of poverty, as does NLADA. April Fraser Kamara serves as its president and CEO. April has been a champion for equal justice for two decades. A graduate of Howard School of Law, she worked as a public defender in her hometown of Memphis, Tennessee, and at the Public Defender Service for the District of Columbia before joining NLADA. She has been a part of the NLADA leadership team for the past five years, most recently serving as vice president for strategic alliances and innovation, and prior to that, chief of lifelong learning. She is a co-founder of NLADA's newest section, the Black Public Defender Association, which aims to increase diversity, equity, and inclusion in public defense and promote racial equity in criminal legal systems. As the 2020 chair of the American Bar Association's Influential Criminal Justice Section, she led the adoption of important ABA policy on race equity and prosecution, raising the age for juvenile prosecutions, reparations, abolition of private prisons, and other complex criminal legal issues. In addition to her JD from Howard, she holds a BA from Tennessee State University. April is a nationally recognized trainer on leadership and racial equity. I think that you will agree that that is a very impressive bio. She's even better in person. 
April, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Joan. I'm so excited to be here with you today and to be in conversation with you. Here, here. So, April, my listeners really appreciate getting to know my guests. So I just wonder if you might share your journey to nonprofit leadership. Can you briefly describe the path to running a nonprofit? Yes, I think for me, it was an unusual path. I cannot say that becoming an executive director or CEO of a nonprofit was on my bucket list of things as far as my career. But fortunately for me, as a former public defender, I absolutely had a desire to go from individual cases to more systemic impact. And so at NLADA, I found a home to be able to still be in community with many of the people that I worked with for many decades, but also to be able to have a more national impact. And so at NLADA, I didn't see becoming the CEO, but I was actually uh, inspired by the ability to create new solutions. So for me, Joan, I think what really began me to, to really think about becoming a CEO was after I created the Black Public Defenders Association. I was able to really dip my toe into fundraising and creating new programming. And so it was really inspiring for me. And I thought that I could have a greater impact within the organization if I was the executive leader. So the kernels of what ignited you about starting the Black Public Defender Association was having a vision about something new and being able to ignite other people to share in that vision as donors and stakeholders of all kinds. Is that what I I'm, think that's what I heard? Absolutely. So the ability to actually take a idea to implementation and what what are all of the components that's required. So of course, building support within our membership, but also fundraising, communications, all of the different aspects that for me, in many ways, it's outside of being an attorney, but it is very much a key ingredient to being a good leader. But I'll also say when I came to NLADA, I really fell in love with leadership training. So I developed a personal interest in trying to grow as a leader. Very, very interesting. So you were at NLADA for X number of years before you said, sure, I will put my hat in the ring to be the president and the CEO. Now, many of my coaching clients who are leaders of color are brand new to their organizations. And they actually have no idea what they're in for, right? They don't know what they don't know. But you were actually an internal candidate. You'd been with the organization for, for five years. You had a pretty good sense of the culture, I'm assuming. Did you apply for the job because you believed that the organization was ready to be a part of your success? Or did you apply knowing that there would be challenges? Honestly, I think it was a combination of both. One thing that's important to note for me, I applied for my position during COVID and during the racial reckoning after the killing of George Floyd. So I was encouraged to apply for the position because I saw leadership within our membership and the board and a newfound commitment to racial equity. I'm not sure that I would have applied for the position if the organization was not beginning to shift and take that internal look around how do we 
center our work on racial equity. So for me, I knew it was a challenge because it would require us to do things differently. But because I was internal, I was able to see the commitment, not just from the members, but also the board to becoming an anti-racist organization and leading through a racial equity lens. And that was a big motivator for me. So you had a view that many leaders of color new to organizations don't have. You had a glimpse, you are more of a front row seat to a commitment that you saw and that had you not seen that, you probably would not have applied. Absolutely. And also, I because I was at the organization long enough, I could also, we see a lot of commitments from organizations and boards, but for the first time, I also saw a willingness to devote resources to a new commitment. And so, I was able to see that the board and the organization was willing to shift and align our values with our investment and resources and support for public defenders and civil legal aid. And so that that was a a, a great motivator for me. So when I hear you talk about your appetite for leadership development, and I and I know that you actually came and found me to be your coach, I a, I feel a real sense of both gratitude and affirmation. But for the benefit of listeners, I want to ask you what I asked you when we first met. I don't have your lived experience. And you and I and everyone knows that I live with all kinds of implicit bias and blind spots that, frankly, you have seen in sessions that we have had together and not been shy about calling me out on those. Why not seek out a person of color to be your coach, April? So, Joan, I think as I shared with you, it was definitely a part of my consideration as I became a a, a new executive leader, exactly what did I need as far as support? As you mentioned before, I was surrounded by not just mentors, but other leaders of color. They may have not been in nonprofit world, but they were leaders in their own right at private law firms in corporate America. So I was surrounded by a support system of other Black executive leaders. And so for me, strategically, I was looking at what do I, what support do I need that is not a part of my existing network? So through my leadership training, I was able to do resource mapping. I could map out my network to see what, you know, am I hearing from people from a corporate perspective? Do I have a network that includes people with lived experience? And so for me, what I was really drawn to you because of your expertise in board management, but also understanding nonprofits. While I had done programmatic work as a nonprofit leader, I had not led a board. I had I didn't understand how to set a vision. I didn't understand, even as a new leader around setting priorities around, for some of us, some people come into positions expecting to be in the position for 10, 20 years. Some leaders come in and view themselves as more impactful leaders who some refer to as transitional. And so I knew for me, coming into this role with a over 100-year-old organization, I really wanted to have impact. And as far as mapping out how much time it would take to have impact, I wanted someone who had insight 
into change management across nonprofits who could really guide me around explaining if this is your goal, it will typically take this amount of time and this level of board support. So for me, you know, I was very strategic in looking at the resources that was already in my circle. And I was missing somebody who really had expertise with board management and nonprofits. And it led me to you. And tell me if I have this right, but I think the other thing that we talked about was, so I have been around the block for six decades, right? And I have served in varying leadership capacities. And I think you also mentioned to me that finding someone who had my expertise, who was also a person of color, was that that was a pretty narrow field. That, that there weren't, and that that's that's part of the issue here is that there are not enough models of more senior people who have been who are leaders of color who have been senior leaders for long periods of time. And I think that's something that you and I talked about. Absolutely. It's definitely a lack of diversity in executive coaches, me and peers. We talk about it. Even if you do have a desire to be coached by a person of color, sometimes you may not be able to locate that person, but also the years of experience. And we can talk about it more today, but whether or not specifically Black leaders stay in nonprofits for a long period of time, enough to be in the variety of the nonprofit space. One thing that's really important to note is that your experience in the nonprofit world can look dramatically different depending on what type of organization you're a part of. So seeing someone who has the experience of either working or serving on boards of various nonprofits and be a leader of color is very hard to come by. There you go. Okay. So let's talk about it. So you applied believing that they're having evidence of a commitment. What did you find when you arrived? How would you articulate the challenges you faced as a leader of color at NLADA? So you mentioned before I was an internal candidate. So I was not new to the organization, but I would say to any applicant, any emerging leader who is thinking of applying to be a CEO, you really truly do not understand until day one, (laughs) until you step into that corner office until you're the final sign off on a budget issue or HR issue. So even though I was, you know, had been a part of the organization for a really long time, the biggest part that I had not participated in was board management. But also when you look at overall budgets, if you're a a substantive expert like I was and you worked in public defense, you may have an understanding of your organization from your viewpoint, right? So oftentimes me at level manager. So for me, I think the biggest part was now I have a board. I have to understand how this board actually feeds into me accomplishing my goals that I have as a leader for the organization. So understanding how important it is for you as you plan as a leader, the execution of it is going to be very dependent on your board. But also, it's a two-way street. You're communicating with a board, but you're also leading a team. And so the dance of being able to communicate well to both was my initial challenge. And for, for the benefit of listeners, 
Talk a little bit about the board and staff of NLADA and the sort of the diversity of that group of people. So we we like to refer to NLADA as a small but mighty team. We typically have a staff of around 25 individuals. And we really do. We touch on all points in the civil legal system and criminal legal system from the standpoint of access to counsel. So we could be working on one day working on issues related to fines and fees and the next day related to bail reform. So our reach is very broad and we have a really uh, small but powerful team that does policy work and member support and does it very well. Our board, like many membership organizations, we have a structure where we have representation from public defenders, civil legal aid, and we also have corporate board members, along with clients, which is a tradition in the civil legal services community, which is, as I said before, depending on what nonprofit you work with, is somewhat unusual. It's not a lot of client representation. So we actually, in our structure, we have client board members. And our board can fluctuate from anywhere from 28 up to 36 members. So for a lot of people, that's a pretty big board. And as you can imagine, it's a lot of different issues and personalities to manage with a board with so much diversity. So let's talk about other kinds of diversity, racial diversity, sexual orientation, you know, sort of though the diversity, put that diversity lens on your staff and board. I'm just trying, trying to give listeners a sense of whether whether your organization's commitment to diversity comes to life throughout the organization or whether or not you are a minority in the NLADA space. Yeah. So one thing that's really important to note, I'm very much a part of a pride legacy of Black leadership at NLADA. I'm the third African-American to be president and CEO of NLADA, which for a lot of nonprofits is quite unique. And we do. We have a very diverse staff. We have a, and not when we talk about diversity, I'm pleased to say it's not just racial, but when it comes to gender, sexual orientation, we have uh, people with differing abilities. I'm very proud of the diversity of our team. And you see that translate into the support we have for members. So similarly, when we talk about diversity, we have people who are experts on the civil legal services, public defense, client community. So we diversity really is a really important component to us being an effective national organization. And I'm happy to say our board is very diverse as well. And it's very important to know geographical diversity because many of us know that the issues that we work on can be starkly different based on your zip code. So I'm really pleased to say that we also represent and have representation on the board for from people who live in different parts of America. And I think it allows us to be a stronger organization. So I could be listening to this podcast as a person who is, you know, just hired as a leader of color for an organization that doesn't have that profile that you just described, right? Where where I am entering a largely white space, for example, right? You have, that has not been true for you. And yet 
there have been issues of alignment about what does it really mean to center racial equity, that that even a diverse staff and board, right? So part of what I want to get at here, April, is in some ways you're in the best of all situations, right? You've got a diverse board, you've got a diverse staff, you know, the commitment is alive, right? Many organizations, it's words on a piece of paper. It's a, you know, it's a poorly crafted DEI vision statement and not a whole lot else. But it seems to me in the in the world of leaders of color, you're in a pretty interesting space. And yet you, t- you have actually experienced, you know, a lack of alignment and some challenges. And I wonder if you could, could speak to some of those. What does that look like for an organization that looks like it's got it all going on? Yeah, I think that's a really great question. And I think it's a really important point to note that regardless of whether how things appear, the road towards racial equity and anti-racism is a long journey for any organization. So while we are a diverse organization, we are an organization with a legacy of Black leadership. We are also a legal organization, It is very much rooted in traditional legal structures, which is very much the white dominant culture of law very much influences NLADA, like many, whether you're at a law firm, a law school. So imagine you have people who have really great values and goals, but we have been working within a legal structure that is not in alignment with those goals. And so our journey and our work at NLADA is like many organizations. We, let me give you a clear example, Joan. We use terms like anti-racism. What does it mean, right? And so you can imagine at an organization that's 111 years old and with lawyers who love to wordsmith, what does it mean to be anti-racist? There is not uniformity around what that definition means. And so while we may agree on an idea or a value, the implementation of what does it mean to be anti-racism will, of course, allow us, it will require us to do a lot of deep work. And so while I absolutely am fortunate to work at an organization that holds the values, the everyday practicality of what does it mean to stand up to those values, we face very similar challenges. And so we're not immune And also, I think one thing that is very important to note when you work with attorneys, we are not trained on certain principles, specifically when we talk about diversity, equity, inclusion, anti-racism. It requires, first of all, for you to acknowledge that you don't know the answer, which we're trained (laughs) not to admit. Yeah, I was just going to say, yeah. It also requires you to be vulnerable, which we're trained not to do in law school. And finally, I would say it requires, you know, we use the word lifelong learner. You just have to admit that this is a learning process that would would will evolve over time. And so those are all new principles that we're trying to teach our community at NLADA, but it is not inherent in our DNA. I I often when I work with clients and, and you know not in the public in the in the legal community and I will almost always ask how many attorneys do you have on your board because attorneys are really drawn towards board service like it just it it's a way for to ignite some of their 
you know, social justice, you know, whatever it might be. But anyway, there's no shortage of lawyers on nonprofit boards. And, and I always know that a CEO will have a certain kind of challenge about navigating their boards when there are a disproportionate number of attorneys for exactly the reasons you just described. I think there's also, and I have to correct me if I'm wrong, April, but I also think power is a component, regardless of color or ability or any of those diversity lenses, right? First of all, boards have power and they join boards and do have a certain kind of power. How they wield that power can make or can make a real difference in whether they establish a partnership with you or whether they exert that power in some way that is not particularly productive. Absolutely. And I think the dynamic of having clients on our board also presents a whole new opportunity of learning for attorneys. So we oftentimes are not trained to listen. And so like many boards, the dynamic of attorneys and non-attorneys, and we cannot divorce those issues from the issue of race. It's also an issue of class, but how we relate to each other through either the boards or how we serve the communities that we serve is a really big part of the work that I have to do on a daily basis. So centering the communities that we serve requires a certain acknowledgement that no matter how well-meaning we are as advocates who do the work, we are not living daily with those conditions. So the humility that is required to center and allow people with lived experience to lead on boards, not just be on the board, but be equal leaders on those boards is definitely a part of the anti-racism work that we have to do at NLADA and many nonprofits. I, I think this is a very important point help us understand how do you and your board chair navigate conversations in a boardroom that has lawyers and clients? Have you, I mean, have they had, what have you been able to do with the board to equip them to educate them so that you get some of that humility that you're talking about, some of that acknowledgement of the, you know, that, that these, uh, these clients are leaders as much as they are. What do you do? What does it look like to help a board shift in that way? What are the tools? How, do you, how have you worked to equip them? That's a really great question. So it's a few key things that we've done. The first thing that you lead with, and we've done it at NLADA, is language. How do we even refer to people with lived experience? So at NLADA, in the board meetings, we refer to clients as community advocates. And that was a request from the client community because they wanted to eliminate the power dynamic. So in our board meetings, they are not coming to us as clients. They are coming to us as equal advocates and professionals with a very important expertise that we need as a board in order to be successful. So language is something that, you know, for nonprofit leaders, you should ask your if you have directly impacted members on your board to ask them, how would they like to be referred to? I think is an important point. The second um, component is really around whether or not we create seats at the table or whether we have an environment where everybody can be heard and valued. 
And so really making sure that we don't speak in ways as attorneys to isolate people who are not, for some of us, it may be people who are not practicing law or people who are not running organizations. So being very mindful of of how we present and to make sure that it is done well and equitable. But I will say, Joan, one important note is that so many leaders from the directly impacted community has educated me. So they will pre-meet with me to educate me around how to approach a certain issue and how to make sure we have a conversation that is effective and responsive. And I'm able to communicate that to my board chair. And he also takes the time to really, if it's a substantive, complicated issue, we ask for guidance on how we can advance a conversation where everyone around the table is heard. It is the work that you're talking about is some of the hardest work, right? You can make decisions about budgets and you can make decisions about programs, but for a governing board of an organization to have this, I mean, this is this is the, the challenge around diversifying your board, whatever that means to your organization, right? That everyone is seen as a leader and respected. And it requires, it requires, EQ, it requires listening, it requires the skill of having difficult conversations, of hearing difficult feedback, things that are muscles, I think, that many lawyers have not exercised, but I think are sold short in the nonprofit sector in general because we just get to the work. But you can't do the work unless you have actually created a culture in your organization that honors the voices of everyone around that table. It really is, it's it's a very interesting thing to consider as you, it is one of the big things to consider as you think about, well, okay, can I diversify my board? Well, that's, that's actually, in some way, that could be the easy part. The question is, can you make that board sing? Exactly. And John, one thing that's important to know, we have brought in uh, outside Harvard uh, Law School Mediation Clinic came in to evaluate, take a look at our governance structure. We had listening sessions with community uh, leaders with lived experience. You have to devote resources and time into really looking at, because diversity is not just checking boxes and filling the seat. It's about whether or not people equitably feel heard and valued in the process. And another thing I wanted to share about involving uh, people with lived experience, we have to recognize, even at NLADA, when you are operating within structures or bylaws that were created before you adopted the value of adding this new voice. So for us, we're 100 years old, but we only incorporated client leaders on our board 40 years ago. And what we did was just dump them into our existing structure. And we never even evaluated whether or not their structure works for this new community of people that we invited in. And so, of course, many of us at nonprofits realize even the way we do our meetings, that is because it's comfortable for maybe traditional leaders, but is it really comfortable and most effective for new voices that you're inviting to the table? So I think just the ability for you to completely open it up and do a real evaluation around even how 
how you run your board meetings. Is it required to proceed in this way? Can we do things in a more inclusive way, but be willing to learn and accept the fact that we have sprinkled diversity and inclusion into systems that were not created to be? Very, very interesting. You mentioned uh, at one point that you center racial equity in your work and that you lead with racial equity. That's something that you talk about a lot. You talk about looking at equal justice through a racial justice lens. I want to ask you to talk about what that means and maybe offer a couple of specific examples of what's happening inside your organization to help people better understand what that means. Absolutely. On my first week as president and CEO, we launched the Racial Equity Initiative, which is a three-year campaign at NLADA to raise resources to do our internal work, but also support the members that we serve. And so what that means is two things, Joan. One is the inward look that is required for organizations to evaluate whether or not our values are in alignment with our practices. So while we say we're striving to be an anti-racist organization, what is our HR policies? Are we doing things unintentionally perhaps that is not creating a equitable and diverse workforce? So for us, we started with an internal survey and we created a culture committee. And the culture committee was formed for about a year to really come up with a set of recommendations to bring back to me. I was not a part of it. And so it was really a space where they could be honest about the current culture of NLADA and whether or not, where did we need to improve? And like many organizations, I'll be very transparent. My staff said, you know, we have a lot of work to do in order to align our everyday practice to the values that we uh, articulate. And so we're in the process of doing that work, everything from pay equity studies to how do we recruit for positions? How do we uh, build teams? How do we deal with conflict in the office and whether or not it's done in a way where a lot of the inequity issues, oftentimes in organizations, is between management and line staff. And we have to roll up our sleeves and have difficult conversations around that. But one of the most important things that we've done is really encourage people to have courageous conversations. And, you know, it is very important for us to slow down. We talk a lot about we get the work done. So you may let me give you a concrete example. As a nonprofit, you may roll out a program. Let's just say health equity. You do amazing work. You do a big launch event. It, It is a blast. Right. But on Monday, when you come back to the office, your staff how you treated each other in order to execute that event, whether people on your team felt like they were valued and whether all perspectives were heard in the implementation of it is a completely different analysis. So when we talk about doing the internal work, for you to look at internally how we execute in our day-to-day operations, and is that in alignment with making sure that every person, regardless of their race and ethnicity, feels like it's a place that they can show up, be heard, and be valued. And then 
publicly, the second component, of course, if you go on our website, you should be able to visibly see that racial equity is at our core. When we host programming, when we host conversations, typically you're, you're going to see a racial equity track or a racial equity focus in the work that we do. And it's all based on the recognition that we cannot specifically serve in people who cannot afford representation. We can't afford to have those conversations without also having conversations about race in America. And so that is how it plays out in our uh, public work that we do as an organization. I think that really helps people um, bring what you're saying to life. The Nonprofit Leadership Lab is led by Joan Gary and is the world's best online community for leaders of small nonprofits. Learn how to raise more money, build the board of your dreams, grow a large audience of supporters, and so much more. To learn more and request an invitation to become a member, please go to nonprofitleadershiplab.com slash podcast. That's nonprofitleadershiplab.com slash podcast. We're having a, a conversation with April Fraser Kamara, and she is the president and CEO of the National Legal Aid and Defender Association, the oldest and largest nonprofit association devoted to excellence in the deliveries to those who cannot afford counsel. No other organization touches on all the aspects of poverty, as does NLDA, and April has been a champion for equal justice for nearly two decades. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about the political climate, the legal climate, too. We have a world in which more and more companies are dismantling their DEI efforts, which they launched as in, in some ways as a bit of a knee-jerk reaction to the racial reckoning of 2020. I think more folks recognizing that a single person de dedicated to everything DEI is nearly embarrassing and certainly an effort in futility. And then we have some recent Supreme Court decisions and efforts to challenge DEI efforts. And those challenges are going awfully well in Florida. And I wonder if you could talk about, as a leader of color who centers racial equity in your work, what is, and we can take them, you know, one at a time, if you want to talk about sort of DEI efforts, well, they're, they're probably all of a cloth, right? What does this mean for the nonprofit community and the, the commitment of folks like you and others to embed racial equity, to build anti-racist organizations, what kind of an impact do these things have on our organizations, particularly, I would say, our boards of directors who live in the world in a somewhat risk-averse way from the very beginning, right? That they, they see their role as oversight, making sure nothing goes wrong, and and then we put this on top of it. And what do you see when you look down the road? And what are you, what are you worried about? I know sure. you're worried about a lot of things, right? So actually, Joan, as you, as you laid out, you know, kind of the, the state of the world on this day in August in 2023, you know, I'm reminded those of us who deeply hold values around racial equity and justice 
In many ways, this challenge is a great opportunity, a great opportunity to clear the lens in America around people who are truly dedicated to equity and justice and people who are not. And so for organizations who truly it is embedded as a part of their values, they didn't begin racial equity work in 2020, and they are not going to stop racial equity work in 2023. And so I'm reminded of an interview that Cheryl Eiffel gave, and that question was posed to her. You know, you can stack up all of the challenges that we face right now as a country around whether or not we're really truly going to uphold this dream of becoming an equitable society that treats everyone fairly. And she reminded us that we, as Black people, we never give up. And so it is in my DNA. It is not related to my position. This is who I am. I will never give up on the belief that we will fight and we will win. And so like many chapters in American history, we will have to retreat and evaluate new strategies, new partners, new ways to advance our cause. But I see it as a true opportunity for us to, if we fail in any way, we can fail forward. As you said before, many of the attempts around DEI was not well thought out. It wasn't, we are. We have not as a country been realistic about the amount of resources and commitment that it's going to take to move us forward. So for those of us that it's in our DNA, it's just time for us to be really clear around what is really going to be required. And those who are serious about facing the challenge will join us in the fight. I have some clients who run LGBT organizations and I, I, you know, you hear very similar kinds of inflection points and, right, what do challenging times make possible, right? Very thoughtful. So really, I guess I have two final thoughts here. One is you and having you said all of that, and I think that that's you know it's hard to disagree with what you've just said, but you can't tell me that this climate doesn't have an impact on leaders of color and their wellness and and I, I just wonder if you want to speak a little bit to that because I know wellness is is something that is also a commitment to that is also part of your DNA, and there's no question that climate does take its toll. And I wonder if your observations or advice. Absolutely. And specifically, I'll uh, direct my comments to very well-intended board members who are trying to recruit, retain uh, leaders of color as executive leaders. One thing that has to be very clear is that first you have to support their wellness. There has to be an investment. So Joan, for you and our relationship, when I took the position, my board, along with my contract, came an investment in my executive coaching. Executive coaching is important, but wellness coaching is important as well. So to make sure that your leaders are well for any organization means you can really look at sustaining the longevity of a leader. So I think boards 
we hear it more in corporate America right now, but people are really looking at this issue of wellness from a retention standpoint. So if you're a board where you may have recruited leaders of colors and and they're not staying or the diversity, the turnover in your organizations are really high, I think you should really apply a wellness lens because it's important. And another thing that I have to say about wellness, as a Black leader, how I lead and how I show up, I hope you expect me to show up differently. So one of the most important components of wellness is not to expect your Black leaders to to fit the mold of white leadership. We may show up differently. We may lead in a different way. And for us to have the support of the boards, for us to try new things, and for things to look and feel different at the organization is really important because one comment that I hear a lot from leaders of color is that we're not willing to leave our identity behind in order to fit into these positions. So a part of wellness is creating an environment specifically for boards to make sure that your leader feels comfortable showing up showing up as their whole self. And that gives them the ability to be well. So for example, acknowledgement on a day where There may be a really heavy social issue facing the African-American community. If we're having a meeting, it's great for you to acknowledge that that is a reality for Black leaders and not to gloss over it. So allowing, acknowledging our humanity and how our lived experience is radically different from other people is a big, big component of our wellness. It actually leads to a, a question that I wanted to ask you about board members responsible for hiring and supporting their leaders. So you have such an array of not, I mean, I know this, right, of nonprofit organizations with turnover at the top. They, many of them, not nearly as far along in their journey as you are, recruiting leaders of color. And I guess I want to ask you, what is it you want board members to understand and what, the, what do you want them to know when they decide to hire a leader of color? I mean, one of the things is what you just said, right? I think it's really important for boards to do an internal organizational assessment. If your goal is really to recruit and retain leaders of color, you need to be very honest about where your organization is in the process of either becoming anti-racist or being a, a diverse and equitable workplace. The reason I say that is because well-intended boards can do more harm than good. When you bring leaders into these positions and your organization is not in a place of growth in order to be able to to really benefit from the leadership of people with different experiences. So I think when we talk about succession planning, it's not just about the profile of the leader that you want to bring in, but to do a really honest assessment of your organization to see whether or not you have the structure in place to allow the person to succeed. So would you recommend, so let's say I'm a board chair, I do said cultural assessment, and I realize right, that the organization is really not ready. What would you suggest I do? Would you suggest I hold? I mean, you wouldn't suggest that I, well, I, that I shouldn't hire a lead of color, right? Do I hit the pause button and do my work 
and, and have someone in an interim capacity until I've actually gone a little further down the road. Like I, I'm, I'm, I'm a board chair and I'm a little stuck with what you've just said. Yeah, I think it's a really good point. One thing that I would highly recommend is if you do an assessment and you see your organization is in a place where it really needs some serious work, first of all, to have the investment in a second position where you're going to bring in, you're not just going to bring in a new leader, but perhaps you're going to also give that person the ability to bring in a new director of people and culture or for people who are, whatever the terminology is, but allow that person to have, to come in from day one with the capacity to be able to work on those issues. One of the main failures that I see is the expectation that a new president and CEO can fundraise, can keep the budget, you know, manage the board and deal with organizational culture. It's not it's not realistic. So at the very minimum, the board needs to assess whether or not they have the budget to bring somebody in who can do the work alongside the, alongside the new leader. But Joan, I just want to finish <laughs> by saying this. Also, the board needs to be very honest with the person that they're recruiting because it does no one any good for you to bring someone into an environment and you're not realistic about where the organization is. So to be able to have an honest conversation with candidates, uh, because a lot of people enjoy taking on challenges. I'm one of them, you know, so you can find the right person who would thrive in that environment. But when you recruit and you're not honest and you throw someone into an environment that they're not prepared for, that's where we see failure. I, I just think the point you just made is so important. And I make this comment a lot to clients that have sort of highly dysfunctional boards. And the client will say to me, I can't bring on X person because they're great and they're going to last about 30 seconds on this dysfunctional board. And I said, maybe somebody might, but if X person is a high performer and loves to be part of transformation, that's their jam. Like they can be a catalyst. And I think that that's exactly right. When That, that you know, honesty is, you know, I think it's, it's key. I, I think that boards are, you know, it's sort of like nominations committees, right? They're afraid that people will say no if they set the expectation for board service too high. And so they sell it short, right? And so this is about coming from a place of scarcity rather than abundance, right? I'm going to be completely honest and transparent with my new prospective leader because I want them to know where we are on every trajectory, so they know that they are coming into an organization that they have a opp real opportunity to make a mark on, right? Yeah. And, and John, just one more point Please. that I think is really important. And this is for all of the emerging leaders who may be listening to us today. I really think it's important, and specifically if you're at an organization who's investing, main and nurturing emerging leaders to step into executive roles, they, we really should see more of an investment in training for emerging leaders, where specifically leaders of color, I see a deficiency in the ability to spot the right questions and issues when interviewing for the positions. And so 
this is very much a, a issue related to just a lack of diversity in those positions. Oftentimes, we don't have people to guide us around asking the right questions of boards and organizations where you can do an honest assessment of whether or not it's a good fit for you. So for those who are really interested in DEI and creating pipelines for leadership, you should really invest in training emerging leaders on what issues should you look out for when you're applying for those positions. And I think it's a complete lack of investment in that level of leadership training. I could not agree with you more. And yeah, I had a client where we had that very discussion about who would succeed that person. And they said, well, I I assume it will be a person of color. I said, well, could it be a person of color that you currently have on your team? And I said, let's go through, it was a big team, let's go through the leaders of color throughout, you know, the, the, throughout your team. And who do you see as, you know, sort of emerging leaders? And as we went through each one of them, there was like, no, well, that person's not ready because of X. That person, would, that person wouldn't get the job because of Y. That person wouldn't get the job because of Z. And I'm like, there's a professional development plan for each one of those people that is going to pay huge dividends when the time comes for you to leave and you have three qualified internal candidates because you've actually invested in their gap skills. Right. And, and I think that people just miss that all the time. So I really want to appreciate you for that, for that comment. And I want to, I want to end with asking you to talk about, I, I don't know what you call your badass women leader of color cohort, but I, I want you to just, I believe in the power of community and people who gather with shared values and shared vision, right? And I have been, I've heard a lot about your group. And I, I thought it'd be really great for you to share with your listeners about why that group formed, what its real value is to its members, and, and what you hope, what you aspire that group to be able to do. Absolutely. So, Joan, you say that community is really big to me. And on this day, of course, I'm very reflective. I came out of PDS, DC Public Defender Service, which is very much a strong national network of community. But also at PDS, I'm also a part of a legacy of Black excellence. So greatly benefited from Charles Ogletree and Angela Davis and Joanne Wallace and others. So for me, a big part of my career was being surrounded and supported by not just Black leaders, but I'm referring to the best creme de la creme of the best, right? So people who were, it was not a job, this is a passion and a purpose. And so one thing that's important to note about when we talk about community, to be surrounded by other Black women who also see this as a part of their calling, their life, their purpose, is the most fulfilling part of me being able to do this work alongside women of that stature. And like many communities, we come together not only to support each other, but also to look at ways that we can amplify. So it's very much not just, you know, I don't want to say a, just a support group, but right. this is thought partnership. Yes. This is 
how are we going to take over the world? How are we going to, you know, whatever the biggest social issue that you see, whether, you know, this leader may be working in this sector and I'm over here, how can we collaborate in order to go further, faster? And so that is the community of women that I'm a part of. And I'm very grateful to people like uh, Jamila Hodge who brought us together and, It is a place of solace, but also a place of dreaming. So as we talk about how do we sustain ourselves in the work, we very much are rooted in the belief that we really can accomplish the impossible because we are a part of this very, very strong community of Black women. We are out of time, but I wanted to make sure that you got a chance to talk about that because I do believe that that this notion of community is so vital. April, thank you very much. I really appreciate being in conversation with you today. appreciate your candor. I appreciate your insights. I appreciate the work that you're doing for NLADA and for really bringing the work to life for our listeners today in a, a really powerful way. So many, many, many thanks. Yes. And Joan, I just want to say thank you for your support of many of these amazing Black women uh, who we do the work. And it is important to have allies who can um, share our values, but also bring forth to us a different perspective that allows us to thrive, oftentimes in environments that were not intended for us to be successful. Well, thank you very much. I hope you have enjoyed the conversation today. I hope that it gave you a lot of things to think about as a board member, as a staff leader, and that you keep rolling it around your head in the hours and days to come. In the meantime, take good care of yourselves. Thank you for your work, and I will see you next time. Thanks so much for spending time with me today. I hope you found the conversation valuable as you navigate the messy world of nonprofits. Check out all my other resources at joangary.com. Hope you find them helpful too. Lastly, thank you for the work you do to repair the world in ways large and small. I'll see you next time.